Good morning. I will ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 14, and we're going to pick up starting in verse uh, uh, in verse 13. I wrote it wrong in my notes, so forgive me. All right, uh, yeah, Matthew 13, Matthew 14, 13. <laughs> sorry, to 21. I'm a mess this morning. Hopefully the rest of my notes make sense. And once you're there, then I'll ask if you would stand as we read God's Word together. And these are the living words of God. Now when Jesus had heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So in today's text, we're looking at something that, where there's a strong emphasis on bread, which in the Bible is synonymous with God taking care of us. This is a, a passage ultimately about God's providence and his care uh, for his creation and his care for those who are His. And this often comes to us in the form of kind of bread messages, daily bread type of things. So in Scripture, bread is a picture and a symbol of God's provision, kindness from God's hand. And we all know that bread is what we need to survive. We need food for our physical bodies. And this is evidently an important lesson in here because, does anyone know, apart from the resurrection, did anyone know that this is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels? I found that out this week as I was preparing. This is the only one that all four Gospels uh, record apart from the resurrection. And in the parallel passage uh, in John, in John's accounting of this Gospel, uh, he records an entire sermon about the bread of life that Jesus gives together with this miracle. Matthew doesn't record that sermon, uh, but John does. But the main theme here is to see how bread is a picture of God's care for us. Last week, we saw how John the Baptist was the Elijah to come, and Jesus talks about his cousin John and calls him Elijah in Matthew 11, verse 14, and he's going to be called Elijah again in future chapters. And we saw the, uh, the typological connection last week between John and, uh, and Elijah. We know that John faced down the wicked Herod and his even more wicked wife, Herodias, just as Elijah faced down the wicked Ahab and his more wicked wife, Jezebel. Like Elijah, John the Baptist exits the story, but the spirit of his ministry carries on through his successor. In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and it is given to him. So Elisha is greater than his forerunner, Elijah. And so even though Jesus comes after John and is his successor, nevertheless, it's obvious that as the Son of God himself, Christ is obviously greater than his uh, forerunner, John, just as Elisha was greater than Elijah. And some of that will play out in the miracle we see in this text. 
Verse 13 and 14 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Well, it starts off here in the middle of a story. Now, when Jesus heard this, well, what's the this that Jesus heard about? Well, remember last week, right at the very end, after John's murder by Herodias and Salome, uh, in verse 12, it says, And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. So Jesus has just received news uh, of his cousin and ministry partner and his forerunner, the herald that's announcing Jesus. He has heard about his death. They're letting Jesus know. And after Jesus hears about this, he withdraws by himself. We know that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. And here we see the humanity of Jesus Christ. We see that he grieves just as any of us would when a loved one or a ministry partner or a cousin dies, especially when that death is in an unjust and violent manner. And no doubt there's an added element here that Christ considers his own death, which is soon to take place. So Jesus is seeing that these people have lost John. He knows, according to his divinity, he knows he's next. And there's this seeming deep sadness and deep mourning that Jesus has for these people in light of what has happened and what he knows also is going to happen. Jesus understands better than anyone else in the room the confusion, the grief, and the discouragement that his disciples are faced with in light of John's death and how this is going to get even deeper when he himself dies. And so whatever grieving Christ is doing in private here is not long-lasting, however, because there's a crowd waiting for him when he gets back to land from his boat. In verse 14, it says that he has compassion on them. And this is the exact same language that we saw in Matthew 9, verse 36, where it connects the compassion Jesus has for the crowd, and it explains it deeper in 9, verse 36. And actually, in some of the parallel accounts of this miracle, some of the other gospels say the exact same thing. They fill it in for us, the kind of compassion Jesus has. When they say, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the compassion comes because Jesus is grieved at the lack of leadership that these people have. And the sheep and shepherd language is fitting. Because what happens to sheep when they have no shepherd? They get distracted. They get lost. They're vulnerable to predators. They go hungry. They're not fed. They're not cared for. And this grips Jesus because this is exactly what is happening to God's sheep. Their leaders have left them vulnerable. They're lost and they're confused and they're without any godly guidance. They're not being fed even by those who have been charged with feeding them. And this is highlighted and really brought to a fine point in the death of John the Baptist. The Jewish leaders who are opposing Jesus should have been reminding both the ruling class and the lay people, reminding them about God's law, about God's covenants, about what it looks like to live for the glory of God. But instead of doing that, they've turned in on themselves. They've become self-righteous. They've started taking care of themselves. These are the hirelings that John talks about. These aren't real shepherds. These are people who are using their position to benefit themselves. And the fact that John the Baptist was preaching repentance to both the common folks out in the desert and to Herod in the royal courtyard makes him stand out. This shouldn't have been a standout. That's what all of God's shepherds should be doing. 
preaching the gospel of repentance, preaching the gospel of the kingdom to both the plowboy and to the king, and they're not. John does, and that makes him stand out. But really, John's example should have just been, that should have been everyone. Everyone should be doing what John was doing, but John stands out. John's rugged and godly leadership should have been commonplace, but it was not. It made John look very different, and that got him in hot water. And now he's gone, right? He just got beheaded because he uncovered the sexual immorality and the incest and the power struggle that's happening in the royal family. John was a godly man. He was rugged, he had courage, he had tenderness, he was a true shepherd, and now he's gone. Now what? These sheep are without a shepherd. So Christ's compassion for them is fitting. It's the appropriate response. And so Jesus starts immediately healing their sick, which is consistent with his ministry that we've seen so far. Verse 15 picks up and says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And so this has been a long day. These people have been following Jesus around on foot. That's how Jesus taught, was while walking. So they're, they're following him around. Jesus has been preaching. He's been healing the sick. The disciples have been at his side. Okay? And the other gospel accounts all talk about the preaching that Jesus was doing. Matthew doesn't address it. But we know he's healing, and he's teaching, and they're walking, and there's a big crowd, and he's just lost his cousin John. Are you starting to get a picture of the emotional fatigue that's setting in? Jesus is ministering out of a deep sadness in his heart, as are the disciples. So I hope you start seeing the picture that's happening. And for yourself, think of those times where you feel spiritually drained, or you're emotionally or physically drained, and then there's a knock at the door, and somebody needs you to help them. Okay? And you just feel empty inside. Surely we've all had a small taste of that kind of a thing. What's it like to have Jesus and a, a crowd of 5,000 needing you? But this is how they were feeling. Their friend and ministry leader, John the Baptist, was just record, rewarded for his courage by being beheaded. And they've had to bury their friend after he is unjustly killed by Herod. And by any sense that we can tell, nothing even changed in Herod's family. So from a human standpoint, it looks like John's preaching of repentance was in vain. They didn't see any change in Herod's life. From a human standpoint, it's easy to say, well, maybe John died for nothing. Nothing happened. No change in Herod's situation. But that's looking at it through the eyes of the flesh rather than through the eyes of faith. And now Jesus spends some time by himself on a boat, and he gets back, and there's a crowd just needing him immediately. I've heard from moms that have little kids in the little years and, and you just can't get away. There's always these little hands that need to touch you and they always need you and they follow you to the bathroom and, and some women I've heard you know, just go outside and they just scream because it's just <laughs> enough, okay? I don't know what that feels like, but surely this is getting to that point. Jesus can't even find the time to grieve thoroughly before there's a great crowd surrounding him once again. And now they've spent all day ministering to people's physical and spiritual needs, and no doubt this crowd is tired as well. It's a huge crowd that's come together to follow Jesus around, and it's the end of the day. So everyone must be running on low. Everyone's fuel tank is empty. And the disciples are ready to call it a day and send everyone home so they can go get food. No doubt the disciples feel like they've also given all that they can, and it's time to send this crowd packing. They try to encourage Jesus, Jesus, please, we're, we're done. 
Call it a day. Send them home. But they soon find out that you don't tell Jesus Christ what to do. Okay? Jesus tells you what to do. They think that they're spent, and now Christ not only says that they have to put up with the crowd for even longer, your time's not done yet, but uh, also, by the way, go feed them. <laughs> what? There's, there's nothing here. There's nothing more to give. In verse 17 and 18, tell us that. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And this was the common food for the majority class of people, for the everyday uh, people. This is exactly what they ate. Dried or pickled fish would have been a a main source to eat meat, right? They didn't have fridges, so you couldn't uh, keep your roast beef uh, frozen until it's time to eat it, okay? So they would pickle fish, they would dry fish, and, and this was a main staple, along with these little loaves of bread. And when we hear about a loaf of bread, you probably think that, you know, the big thing of rye bread that you get from Costco and it lasts our family a couple days. That's not at all what this kind of a loaf is. This loaf, we're talking about a little biscuit, okay, a little dinner biscuit. This is a small little loaf that are intended for one person. And in fact, in John's account, uh, in John 6 verse 9, it says that they got these fish and these loaves from a boy, okay? So this is a young boy and that was probably just his lunch, okay? It took two little fish and six of these or five of these little loaves to feed one boy, Okay, so this is the kind of meal that if you're an active teenager, I'm sure you're still hungry after getting this meal. Okay? And we're going to make it last for a crowd like this. Okay? So again, try to picture this dynamic for a moment. We're all so familiar with these stories, we sometimes don't think about the human element. These are real people with real bodies, real minds, real emotions. Okay? Try to, let's try to get into the story. Okay? And maybe we can make it applicable to some of our own experiences. Think of if you've ever been on a family road trip and there's lots of driving to do, uh, and it's a long day of driving, and people are starting to get tired, starting to get hungry in the back, okay? Things start to not look so good once you've got a car full of little people who are not happy about things, okay? And I have heard, maybe you have too, I have heard of accounts of fathers who get frustrated when there's too much whining in the back seat. I don't know if anyone's heard a story like that, but I have heard that that can happen. If there's too much noise, too much commotion, too much bad behavior, too much complaining, dad gets frustrated. Never seen it, I have heard of it. <laughs> Sounds like you have too. So we know what we're talking about. Okay, but now imagine this is a 5,000 passenger Dodge van. These people are all together. There's 5,000 dads here getting frustrated, okay? at the complaining and the hunger and the exhaustion of those that are there with them. Everyone is tired and hungry. And the men who are supposed to be in charge are tired and hungry and emotionally drained and mourning the loss of their friend and cousin John the Baptist. So Christ has made an already difficult situation impossible by instructing his followers, by instructing his disciples to do the impossible. You go feed them. You go feed them. It's gone from tough to literally impossible. And we read on in verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Okay, so what's the first thing that Jesus does here? He gets the crowd to sit down. And in the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, it says that they sat in groups of 50, which most likely would have made it easier to serve them and and keep track of who's been served uh, and who is not. 
But this is also most likely a way to get the temperature to come down a little bit, to get the crowd quieted down, okay? Sit down in little groups, and we're just going to bring the temperature down here a little bit. And there is a significance to sitting and to rest and to eating, both in Scripture and in our experience. When we eat, we are receiving gifts from God, and sitting gives us an opportunity to think about that, to rest. It's a fitting posture for the action of eating. God serves us while we sit. And think of the dynamic in your own home when everyone's rushing from one activity to the next and everyone just quickly grabs a piece of cold pizza and eats it over the sink versus when you sit down for an intentional family meal and you can pray together and think about it, okay? Get into each other's lives. And there's a, there's a conversation that happens around that when we're not all just running around. It's fitting that when we receive from God, we actually receive from God. Okay, and so I would encourage as much as possible, families, sit down for meals together. Okay? I know there are some nights where everyone's running in different directions. I get that. But as much as it's possible, be together when you eat. And this is also one of the blessings of not having a building yet, and of course we're praying for one, is how much ministry is happening in other people's houses. Right? The Bible studies, the men's night, the, the youth groups, the young adults. It, it's happening in people's houses, and that's a real blessing. Because when you eat with people, when you're in their space, community and fellowship happens. So eating does something. Eating together, eating in a group, serving one another does something. It gives us an opportunity to think through what we're doing, and it allows us to be thoughtful as we receive both rest and nourishment from God. And so when we connect the bread of a meal to the bread that's here being served for the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do later this morning, staying seated and being served by God's servants communicates just that. I know in some churches the logistics require people to come up. But in terms of symbolism for the Lord's Supper, it actually fits well that the sheep remain seated and are served. It's a reminder of the way God uses his ministers to serve others. Sitting is receiving. Okay? Being served a piece of bread and a glass of wine is receiving. It's a fitting symbol for the way God serves his people. It's not a reward that we receive for our striving, but it is quite literally God coming down and serving us by sheer grace. So when the elders serve communion later this morning, the same thing is being pictured here as what's pictured in the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus Christ has compassion on you. And he invites us to rest in the seat of his mercy, and then he sends his shepherds out to feed you. That's what's being pictured. Everything that Christ does here is the perfect answer to the compassion that he feels deep in his heart for his sheep. He heals us, he protects and strengthens us through the preaching of his word, and then he gives us rest as we remain seated, and then he sends his messengers out to feed us. And Jesus also gives, gives thanks to God before the serving starts, and this is also fitting. The whole account is about God's provision for us, and so thanksgiving is the appropriate response. Okay? And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, few and probably none of us in this room know what it's like to be hungry. That's my guess. Maybe somebody does. I doubt it. Maybe you've been hungry after a hockey game and you have to wait an hour to get home and eat supper. That could be. But that's not the hunger I'm talking about. I'm talking about real hunger. Okay? Hunger that has marked human history and that is still uh, present in the world today. Hungry, hungry. Perhaps we have been hungry for an hour or two, but we don't know what it's like to be so hungry that it's, it's a form of desperation. 
And I think that shapes the way we just go through praying at mealtime, like we're going through the motions. People who have been hungry, I think praying at mealtime means something that it doesn't mean to us. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray before mealtime. It means we should remember that we have been served by God so many times over and over and over again that we just assume you can go to the grocery store and there's food there or there's food in the fridge or food in the pantry. Okay? That's not the norm in human history. That's an incredible gift from God and we need to remember that when we pray uh, at mealtime. We are rich and we are well-fed. So we think praying is something you just do immediately before passing the mashed potatoes. But Jesus demonstrates something different here. This is genuine thanksgiving in a pitiful situation. When my own ancestors came to Manitoba in a, another desperate situation in 1874, their stories that the first winter they got so hungry they started to eat next year's seed wheat. Well, if you're eating next year's seed wheat, guess what? Next year's going to be worse than this one just was. Okay? That's hunger. That's desperation. I've got World War II ration booklets from my grandpa's family, okay? where you're rationed how much tea and sugar and butter you get. We don't know that. And so it's worth us thinking about how many days in a row would you or your children have to be hungry before you start feeling desperate? And I sometimes think even about the peace and stability in our world. How many days of being hungry would it take for all that stability to just evaporate? Two? Three days? I don't know. It wouldn't last long. Okay? It would not last long. If people were hungry and desperate for their children, peace would not last long at all. So are our prayers at mealtime marked by thanksgiving? All this in Jesus too, we are so blessed. We are so rich. Praying before mealtime is a good habit that I would suggest is worth keeping, and it's in keeping with the pattern that Jesus shows us right here. I would just add an element of thoughtfulness, thinking about it. And when we ask God for our daily bread, as we've been taught to in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's also fitting to be thankful when he does give it, even if he's given it freely every day of your life and you just start to expect it. Just think for a minute how amazing it is that you do not know what it's like to be hungry. Okay? We are some of the richest people who have ever been born. The vast majority of people in human history cannot say that we can say that. I don't know what it's like to be hungry. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I have no idea what it's like, but I want to thank you. And I also want to encourage, as an aside here, what a fitting time to do family devotions. Sitting together as a family, praying together, Okay, reading, it doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be cumbersome. I think our family devotions maybe takes about five minutes. Okay, you read a passage of scripture, we use the Table Talk magazine, we go around, get the kids to all say one thing that they remembered or, or one thing that they learned or a question that they have about what we've done. Mealtime is a perfect time to do that. And I want to encourage, especially the fathers in this room, do that. Okay, pray with your kids at mealtime. Read God's word at mealtime. Our family doesn't sing. I know some families do a song at family worship. I'm not equipped to lead my family that way. But if you are, then do it. Okay? But be in God's word. This, we're receiving from God. Physical bread, why not spiritual bread as well? And do it all with the spirit of thanksgiving. Verse 20 says that they were all satisfied and that the 12 full baskets left over showed just how satisfied everybody was. There's leftovers. And we know the significance of 12, right? There's 12 tribes. There's 12 apostles. This is the fullness of God's people. And so surely there's something uh, significant or symbolic about the number of 12 baskets here. 
that God is making a new uh, covenant people. And this is the reminder that when someone receives an inheritance, it's mediated in twelves, seemingly. But there's also several points of uh, contact with some of the Old Testament pictures. Okay? And the Old Testament is like priming the pump to help us get pictures of the coming Messiah. And I want to encourage you to read your Bibles that way. Okay, read your Old Testament as this is priming, this is creating an appetite to help us learn about uh, Mashiach, about Jesus who is to come. These are not Aesop's fables, they're pictures of Jesus in shadowy form. And there's several such points of contact with this miracle. There's the very well-known story of the past when God provided enough bread for his people out in the wilderness, right? The story of the manna. We're not used to, in our experience, it raining bread, but it did for quite some time. That God, uh, God's people out in the wilderness could learn the lesson of daily provision. That was very literal daily bread out in the desert. There was always enough every morning, okay? And just enough. Notice how when the people tried storing for the next day, it all went rotten, and the only exception was for the Sabbath, then they could gather two days, okay? This is a very literal daily bread lesson that God's people have to learn before Jesus explains it in the Sermon on the Mount. The five loaves that Jesus is working here uh, may also remind you of the story of David and his men when they're on the run, and they're hungry, and David meets Ahimelech the priest who, interestingly, gives five loaves of the showbread to David and his men so that they can eat. And so here, too, I want to suggest that this is a shadowy account of a priest using five loaves to nourish God's people when they're without a shepherd and on the run. Okay? This is Christ in the shadows. Ahimelech, the lesser priest, showing us what it's like for the great priest to feed his people with five little loaves when they're without a shepherd and on the run. And then we also have talked about Jesus calling his cousin Elijah, which must mean that Christ is Elisha, and the connection to this miracle in particular. There's many ways in which Elisha gives us a picture of Jesus Christ. For example, in 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14, he heals Naaman of leprosy, something that Jesus is going to do. He has super, supernatural knowledge of where people are and what they're thinking in 2 Kings 5, 25 and 27. Elisha has the ability to open people's eyes to spiritual realities, 2 Kings 6, 17 through 20. Elisha raises a dead boy to life in 2 Kings chapter 4. And even more interestingly, perhaps the most interesting one, Elisha gives us a taste of what it's like to offer other people resurrection from his own grave. Does anyone remember the story in 2 Kings 13 where there's a dead body and they throw him into Elisha's grave? And what happens when he touches Elisha's bones? He's alive. Okay? Elisha offers other people resurrection from the grave when they touch him. Is that not a picture of Jesus Christ? Okay? Through his death, he touches us and gives us resurrection life. But as pertains to the abundance of this miracle, there's two accounts in particular in Elisha's ministry that should give us a taste and prime the pump to see what kind of a ministry Jesus is involved in. One is the miracle he performs for a poor widow who owes money to her creditors. And she said, I've got nothing. I've got this little jar of oil. I could sell it, but it's not going to be enough. Okay, this woman was desperate. And Elisha has compassion on her. He says, go to your friend's houses. Go get a bunch of oil jugs. 
bunch of empty ones, and then just start filling them. And you're going to realize this little thing of oil is going to fill these great big jugs, and you're never going to run empty. There's going to be stuff left over. And she does it, and she sells it, and she pays her creditor. Okay? Elisha has compassion on this shepherdless woman. And he takes care of her out of abundance. It never runs out. It never runs out. She can keep pouring from this little jar of oil. And there's another miracle of Elisha in 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44, that very closely shadows the feeding of the 5,000. It says, A man came from Bel Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Okay? Elisha feeds a hundred men with twenty loaves, and that is miraculous. Twenty loaves is probably enough to feed two, maybe three guys. Okay? So this is miraculous in itself. But it's still just a small taste of what Jesus has done here. Feeding a much larger crowd with much less to start with. Jesus Christ is very clearly the true and better Elisha. Jesus is a prophet from God with even more of God's spirit than his forerunner. A man who heals. He is a man who gives sight, who raises to life, who provides resurrection power from his own grave, and who shows compassion and mercy by providing for those who are hungry and without a shepherd to care for them. And then it says in verse 21, And those who, were about five, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And so here we see that the crowd is counted by heads of households, by the men. And so in addition to these men, we have women and children. So realistically, the crowd is probably double or even triple of the 5,000. Okay? The city of Steinbeck is following Jesus around. And he fed them all with the small boy's lunch. That's what just happened. Okay? This is a large crowd. And they're counted by their fathers. In our society, we tend to see people in very individualistic terms, where each person is like his or her own marble rolling around in this box. Sometimes you're in close proximity to another marble, but you're not connected in any way. This is a very individualistic and a very autonomous way of thinking. And it's morally empty. It's not how the Bible conceives of humanity. A biblical conception of humanity does not allow us to think that way. The Bible tells us to think in covenantal terms, okay? And I'm just, I'm going to mention the last wedding that I recall from here, uh, and they're not even here this morning, so I, I couldn't ask for permission, so I'll ask for forgiveness if it's a problem. About a year ago, Keenan and Caitlin got married, okay? Keenan Dirksen and Caitlin Fraze became the Dirksons, okay? Something new was created to become one, entering into covenant with each other. That's how all of our marriages work, and generations are bound covenantally to one another. And so rather than thinking of ourselves as individual marbles rolling around in this great big box of the universe, the Bible would have us think of ourselves, and I've used this example before, but it's so true, as leaves on a tree. Yes, each one is a special creation of God, but each leaf is a shoot from an older branch. And as that little shoot grows and matures, guess what it's going to do? It's going to become a branch and send more out. 
Okay, that's a covenantal way of thinking about reality, about our obligations to other people and uh, to our own fathers and mothers that God has given us. This is a biblical way of thinking that allows each person to exist as a person, but never in an autonomous or an independent way. None of us are self-created men. Okay? I, I heard a great line about, uh, this had to do with entrepreneurship and, and wealth, that the problem with self-made men is that they tend to worship their maker. <laughs> okay? Think about that. The problem with self-made men is that they tend to worship their creator. I'm a self-made millionaire. Mm, mm-hmm. All right, good. Guess who's the best guy he's ever met? Himself. Okay? That's the problem with self-made men. We are not self-made men. We are people who are dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ for our daily bread, physically and spiritually. And so when the Bible counts the population by grown men, it's not just showing us how the ancients did things. It's showing us how reality actually works. Okay? This kind of numbering... Uh, is especially evident in military application. This is the same way the Israelites were counted out in the desert. Okay? And it sends the lesson that men are covenant heads who bear responsibility for others. And this is actually important when we think about the shepherding theme. So this kind of numbering of the people out in the wilderness would send our attention back to Moses, back to the Exodus, and it should also help us to see uh, Christ in Moses. Christ is also the better Moses. And so again, to bring it all the way around. The main theme in this passage is the providence of God. Christ cares for those who are His, and He has compassion for those who are without a shepherd, and He takes that role on Himself. He sees a need, and He immediately goes to fill it. Okay? And if you're a man here this morning, that's biblical manhood. That's biblical masculinity. You see a problem you didn't create, and you say, well, that must be my problem, because God put me here. Okay? That is biblical masculinity. That's the kind of masculinity of John the Baptist. That's the kind of masculinity of Jesus. It's not bluster. It's seeing a need and saying, God has called me as a man to take responsibility for others around, to be a shepherd to them. Jesus Christ has compassion on those who have no shepherd, and he takes that role on himself. Without a shepherd, the sheep are lost, they're vulnerable, and they're hungry. And when the shepherd comes, they are found, they are gathered together, they're protected, and they are well-fed. So in terms of applying this to ourselves, every one of us here this morning is a sheep. We all depend on Jesus for our daily bread, not only for physical food, but also for feeding spiritually on Jesus, who is the bread of life. Man does not live by bread alone, but by the words of the shepherd. And so it is fitting that all of us stop our own restlessness, take time to sit down, And this is what Sabbath is. Take time to sit down and be fed by God. And this needs to all happen with a deep sense of thanksgiving. Some of us are also in the place as the shepherds, as the under-shepherds, the servants, responsible to help mediate and carry out this bread to others. And so this is obviously the case for us as elders, but it's also the case for husbands. It's the case for fathers. It's the case for mothers who have little children who need them. And it's also for any other kind of caretaker who are responsible for other people in their lives. We all take this under-shepherding role to some degree. And we're often too tired, too restless, too empty, or too frustrated to serve others, just as the disciples were. But in His mercy, Christ is gentle and patient. 
He is not a ruler like Pharaoh who demands that you make more bricks without straw. That's not how Jesus exercises kingship. Okay? He gives and gives and gives some more so that we can serve. And have you ever had the experience, and Mr. Ginter maybe mentioned it in his testimony this morning, have you ever had the experience where you served another person, no matter how empty you were, and in the process you found out that Christ actually fed you? Has that ever happened? Okay. Christ keeps giving and giving. There's no end to the oil. There's no end to the bread. There's no end to the fish. If he's called you to a situation, he will make sure that you have the tools to do it. This is how he serves us. And I think this is a very fitting text for the first Sunday of the month when we celebrate the Lord's Supper here. The bread and the wine that we're about to enjoy are not magical. They're just real bread and wine. But they're also more than just a bare memorial. The book of Hebrews says that when we gather for corporate worship, as we have this morning, that the Spirit actually ushers us into heaven. Or depending on how you understand that text, heaven comes down. But either way, when we gather for corporate worship, and this is why in-person corporate worship is so potent, heaven and earth literally meet when we gather for worship like this, when we pray to the living God, when we are in God's word, when we sing together, heaven and earth are touching each other. Sabbath is a taste of the eternal rest and the eternal sufficiency that we will enjoy. So lean into it. Corporate worship is a big deal. Do you understand what that means? That means that right now, we are before the face of God. God is here with us, looking, examining, And right now, there is a weight of glory and a weight of joy all around us. Jesus Christ is spiritually present with us right here, right now, in a shop of all places. Jesus is here. And he is giving us rest as we sit and receive from him, both in his word and now in sacrament. He is strengthening us and feeding us through this very physical and very plain bread and wine. And he is driving the nail of his gospel further in each time. And so now as we move to the supper, think about how the forms and the elements are meant to teach us and to get into us. You are seated. You are resting in God's care. And God's under-shepherds are going to be sent out to feed you. And you are given wine to remind you of Christ's blood and bread to remind you not only of the way God physically sustains you, but how he feeds us spiritually on his body and on his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us about your sufficiency. Lord, you feed us everything we need. And even when you call us to feed others, to give of ourselves, it's not really ourselves we're giving of. You are sufficient even for that. Lord, you give and give and give some more. May we never take that for granted. May we always be delighted that you have filled our hands with something to give to another. I pray that we would see it as pure joy and that we would do serve with thanksgiving and also that we would receive with thanksgiving when we need to receive. Lord, it's all from your hand, the receiving and the giving. And I pray that we would be thankful people. I pray that we would be thankful for our day-to-day provisions. I pray that we would be thankful for your word. I pray that we would be thankful for this church. And I pray that we would be thankful that you're teaching us in the elements that we're about to receive. Lord, teach us, instruct us, and strengthen us for service. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.